Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am your host, Scott Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. If the topic is leadership, I'm in. I've spent more than 20 years in the field teaching, learning, writing, and questioning. When I'm not working on Phrenesis, I travel, delivering keynotes, working with individuals and teams, and helping people from organizations across industries become better leaders. Want to learn more? Visit me at scottjallen.net. Phrenesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership. We explore relevant topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Listen Notes lists Phrenesis in the top 3% of podcasts worldwide. Phrenesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, ILA brings together those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge, and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. Finally, if you enjoy Phrenesis, please subscribe to stay current on our weekly episodes. Finally, if you enjoy Phrenesis, please subscribe to stay current on our weekly episodes. If you find an episode that resonates, please share it with your colleagues and friends. And if you want more content, subscribe to my newsletter, The Leader's Edge. The link is in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. And now, here's today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to Phronesis. Wherever you are in the world, thank you for checking in. Thank you for having a listen today. I am excited for this conversation with Dr. Wendy Smith, and she is the Dana J. Johnson Professor of Management and Faculty Director of the Women's Leadership Initiative at the Lerner College of Business and Economics, University of Delaware. She earned her PhD in organizational behavior at Harvard Business School, where she began her intensive research on strategic paradoxes, how leaders and senior teams effectively respond to contradictory yet interdependent demands. Working with executives and scholars globally, she received the Web of Science Highly Cited Research Award in 2019, 2020, 2021 for being among the 1% most cited researchers in her field and received the Decade Award in 2021 from the Academy of Management Review for the most cited paper in the past 10 years. Her work has been published in such journals as the Academy of Management Journal, Administrative Science Quarterly, Harvard Business Review, Organization Science, Management Science. She has taught at the University of Delaware, Harvard University, and the University of Pennsylvania, Wharton, while helping senior leaders and middle managers all over the world address issues of interpersonal dynamics, team performance, organizational change, and innovation. Wendy lives in Philadelphia with her husband, three children, and the family dog. So Wendy, that that is impressive. What else do listeners need to know about you before we jump into this conversation? You're not in Philadelphia right now. Scott, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. And I am not in Philadelphia right now. We're not with the family dog right now. We are in Sydney for six months. So I am happy to be in this conversation around the world with you. Uh, Well, Wendy, I, okay, so two fun facts. One, if you're, I'm in Cleveland, Ohio. So if you drill a hole, Straight through the earth. I think we come off just off the coast of Perth, Australia. So you're literally halfway around the world. I know Perth is still about five hours away, but it's pretty fascinating, that statistic. And then I'm going to be in Sydney this, this Sydney this summer. 
What's something that I need to do while I'm in Sydney? What's something that you've stumbled upon that maybe isn't, you know, the opera house that I'll for sure get to, but is there anything that you've stumbled upon that was just this really pleasant surprise that I should prioritize? Scott, it's amazing to me how many people are coming through Sydney. I am in the right place at the right time. <laughs> uh, I can't tell if it's because the world has opened up and therefore people are figuring, let me travel to the farthest place possible where there is an amazing community of colleagues, scholars, leaders, just incredible at this moment. You will be among good company. Uh, I am thrilled to be here in a home that is not too far from the Sydney beaches and it could not be a better opportunity for some sabbatical time. So I would say hit the beaches because that is quintessential Sydney. <laughs> okay, awesome. I'll do that. I'll do that. Well, we've got a book and I think your area of, I love the title because I love this way of thinking, both and. So talk about that. Talk about the impetus of that and how you think about this topic. Yes. Maybe as a way in, I can tell you how I was introduced to both and. Uh, as you said, I'm an academic. I started out thinking about this at two levels, both my own personal challenges, which I am happy to talk about, as well as uh, the academic space that I was in. I was studying innovation. I was studying how IBM senior leaders were navigating their space to innovate into what we now know as cloud computing, mm. and at the same time had to manage millions, billions of dollars at the corporate level of work of current clients, current customers. Yes. So how did they live in that tension? And so much of the innovation space looked at this question of how we move from the past into the future and don't get stuck in the past and stuck in inertia. But that was not the issue they were grappling with. What they were grappling with was not only how to move into new opportunities. They were struggling with how do I do that while at the same time living in their existing operational efficiencies and yes. current customers. And that was the challenge that they were managing. Uh, so at the same time, I was struggling with my own tug of wars, challenges, competing demands. I was in a PhD program and I was struggling with this tension between, am I an academic who studies problems or uh, am I in what we in the academic world like to call the real world, actually <laughs> acting on making a change, uh, navigating that tension. And so here I was experiencing my own tug of wars while observing how these IBM leaders were navigating their tug of wars and seeing parallels there. And the, the big picture idea was that whatever our challenges are, our tensions, we face lots of those in the world. We tend to face them as an either or. We pull them apart and assume we have to make a choice between them. Is there another way and this is what introduced me to the language of paradox and the notion of interdependent opposites, which I'm assuming we will get into, and the exploration of using both and as another way to address these issues. Well, I absolutely love it because you hear you hear the either or dialogue all around you. Once you're tuned into it and you're paying close attention, it's fascinating how we as human beings put those two in different boxes. And that simple question of how, how could we do both? How, thinking, you know, staying in that, that place of how, I, I, I think it's, it's 
brilliant. It's fascinating because I, I don't know, are we, do we default to this either or space based on your experience? Is that a human default of our minds? We do default to that. And there's a whole lot of psychology that talks about why. The basic idea is that when we're confronted with these tug of wars, they feel uncomfortable emotionally. They they leave open uncertainty. We tend to not like that kind of uncertainty. So making a choice allows us to minimize that uncertainty. We also, when we're facing these competing ideas, our brains go to this assumption that they are oppositional. As soon as we see oppositional, we assume they can't go together. And so we default to pulling them apart without seeing the possibilities of the interdependence. We tend to have more of a linear binary mindset rather than see the holistic interdependence between them. So there's a whole lot of reasons in psychology why we go to that either or. And by the way, just as a bit of a footnote to that, when I started studying this, people would say to me, well, you know, East and West, we deal with it differently. In the East, there tends to be this more interdependent approach to these kinds of tensions. And that is true to a certain extent. What the research will say, however, is that East looks for this concessional, they don't want to be in the conflict middle way, but that doesn't always get us to a better both and. And we can talk a little bit more about that too, but even in the East, there tends to be this default to making a choice, but it's not always the better choice. Mm. Well, what is the decide? Isn't that to kill off one? Isn't even the root of that word decide? If if we look at that, isn't it uh to kill one off or something like that. We're defaulting to want that closure and get that clarity, right? I love that you've said that. I have nobody has ever said that to me before, but as you say it out loud, decide, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, so I, I love that. It's to assume there's opposite sides and you have to pick one. I love that. Well, I learned that from Tony Middlebrooks, your colleague at the University of Delaware, former colleague at the University of Delaware. And and of course, you'd written a section in this textbook that we just released, the the second edition of the textbook. So talk about where you see this in the wild. And, And one of the things that I love about your bio is that when you talk about what do I want, do I want to be an academic or do I want to be, quote unquote, in the real world, it seems that you have achieved that both and in a very, very nice way, Wendy. (laughs) Well, well, thank you. It was not easy to get to, and the path along the way was painful. Sometimes we say that research is me-search. We're studying our (laughs) own experiences. I also want to say, Scott, I love that, and I'm so grateful to be in the new textbook that you and Tony have created. I, I would love to see this notion of both and thinking and paradox in every leadership textbook. I think it's so valuable as a lens. And I mean, I, I, I clearly think it's valuable. It's work that I've been doing along with my co-author, Marianne Lewis, for years. In the wild where we see it, here's what I think is, is powerful about this idea or what I've learned is powerful about this idea. It is a way of approaching challenges, tensions, issues, wherever they come up. So Marianne and I both started both independently and then in our work together, because we've been working together for about 20, 25 years. And we, we both started in looking at the kinds of challenges that leaders face at the top of the organization, which yeah. have only magnified in the last 20 years. And that could be issues of innovation, issues of sustainability, issues of globalization. Each one of those and others come present themselves as dilemmas to us, present themselves as a tug of war between opposing tensions, whether it's 
in the innovation tension they issue between today and tomorrow, or the sustainability tension they issue between markets and mission or, you know, people and profits, or in the globalization tension, the issue between being global and unified or local and distinct. And those show up as opposing demands that ask us to make this either or choice. And the invitation there is, can we think about them in a different way? And as you said, it shows up in our, you know, and the more research that we were doing as we progressed, this mindset, we were, again, seeing it in our own lives. We were seeing it in the work that our colleagues were doing at the more micro level, at the individual level of how people think about, you know, their own career decisions, their own personal life decisions, work-life balance. Uh, We're seeing it in how people parent and how they partner in that kind of anywhere in our life, tensions emerge. Our mission, if you will, is to invite people to not see tensions as a bad thing, but -hmm. rather see tensions as a force of life where we as individuals um, have the opportunity, have the agency to approach them in a different way, in our own way. And if we can learn to engage with them, to understand that tensions just are, it's not if we face tensions, but how, then we invite ourselves into thinking about different ways to navigate them. Say more about force of life. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And say a little bit more about the, okay, how do we approach these forces yeah. of life, so to speak? Well, and here's where we could get a bit abstract. So I'll invite you to pull me back to the pragmatic yes. at any point. <laughs> what we would argue is that, and, and so paradox is the substructure of our life, or what we say in the book, what we say in both and thinking is that paradoxes are underlie all of our dilemmas. And here's what we mean by that, which is that we confront in our lives as individuals, as employees, as parents, as partners, as leaders, we confront on an ongoing basis competing demands, tensions, and they feel they present to us like a dilemma, which we define as something that requires a solution from us or something that requires a resolution from us. And that often pulls us into either or decision making. And so that dilemma could be for a leader, how do I allocate my engineers and, you know, my my engineers to today or tomorrow projects, innovation or existing projects? Or how do I think about my strategy in terms of breadth or depth? Or how do I navigate my organization in terms of how collaborative we are, how competitive we are, how centralized or decentralized? Or in our personal lives, am I spending my time right now with work versus life? And how am I navigating that tension? Or again, in our parenting, am I being more discipline-oriented or more empowering and autonomous? All of those choices come up for us. Or in our leadership, I mean, this is, you know, to ground this into the leadership conversation, leaders are constantly confronted with, in my leadership, should I be more democratic and enabling and invite in more uh, ideas from everybody? Or autocratic or more definitive and 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 come up with a definitive answer or you know a big tension and particularly as you said I, I run a women's leadership center this is one that is global but particularly poignant for women am I as a leader am I more compassionate or more competent because in for women that's seen as a trade-off it's seen as if you're one if you are more compassionate you're seen as not competent and so The invitation there is to say, we confront these tensions as either ors, but underneath them is a substructure in which 
they are actually more holistic and interdependent. They are paradoxical. So if we yes. think about compassion and competency, we we face this question of, you know, if I am going to be nice to my coworkers and kind, people are going to see me as not competent. Well, how to you, to your point, what are the ways in which our competencies, our demonstration of our success actually allows us to be more compassionate, connected, collaborative? And then what are the ways in which collaboration enables us to get more done, to be more competent, to be more effective? If we start looking at that, that interdependency, then we're looking at the problem through a very different lens. And it offers up a huge possibility of new ways of engaging in that problem. I'll, I'll give you one more very briefly, and then I'll pause. Yes, please, please, please. I was just uh, having a conversation with somebody about some of the work around vulnerability. And I know that you have had some conversations on vulnerability. At the core of this work of vulnerability, and this is, I think, an important conversation that people like Brene Brown have put on the table, we have seen vulnerability and strength as being two opposite, you know, two opposing pressures, Brene Brown and others have actually reminded us that actually it is through vulnerability and openness and the willingness to recognize both recognize our weaknesses or recognize our uncertainties that we can get to a point of greater strength rather Mm -hmm. than seeing them as pitted against one another. And so we see this in so many of these places where it feels like a trade-off, but actually there are these interdependencies. Well, and I love the phrasing. I mean, as you were speaking, uh, an image kind of it, an, an image kind of opened up for me that uh, our thinking can get so binary and truncated into this either or space that once we see the both end, there's a whole world of possibilities that potentially open up, right? Yes. And just the question and the framing of, well, how could we achieve? incredible culture and cost savings, <laughs> you know, I mean, whatever it is, how can we, and and again, then that takes people's minds to a place of possibilities versus keeping it locked into two separate options. I love that. You asked the question, how do we do this, right? We jump into like, okay, all right, I'm in. Yeah. It takes us, sometimes it takes us a while to, to convince people that this is a valuable lens, right? And you're saying I'm in, how do we get there? And one of the number one stress. So we we wrote the book really to do a deep dive into that question. And we we frame the middle content of the book really around sets of tools that enable us to get there, tools about how we shift our mindset and how we manage our emotional experience, how we manage the context around us and how we enable us to be more dynamic. And to your point, the entree into this kind of thinking, the first step we say is exactly what you just said. You have to change the question. And that invites us into a whole new set of possibilities. And we find that uh, in our own work and, uh, you know, on an ongoing basis, I run this women's leadership center. Uh, My colleagues know that uh, if they put out an either, or should we be more focused on the students or (laughs) the executives? Okay, well, how can we bring those together so that we bring the students in conversation with the executives and the executives in conversation with the students. How can we do that? You know, and it's true in my classes too, when I teach my MBA classes. And in fact, it's almost a default for those of us that are professors uh, and particularly business school professors, we tend to 
frame a class, we often will put up a case study and say, okay, should they go with strategy A or approach A or approach B? Let's vote and start with that. And oftentimes I will do that to invite people to remind them into this either or thinking and then pause and say, okay, well, what about option C? Yes. Is there an option in which we can say, how can the protagonist do both? And in fact, that is the first step into thinking, into changing our mindset around these issues. I was just in a conversation the other day. So I'm at a Jesuit institution. And at this Jesuit institution, we talk a lot about Ignatian pedagogy, which in a very simplistic way is kind of experience, reflect, act. I mean, it's almost similar to Kolb's learning cycle in certain ways. You know, this individual, it was a colleague and they said, well, we we can't achieve, we can't achieve some of the principles of Ignatian pedagogy when it's an asynchronous course. And, and my mind immediately went to, well, how could we? How, how can that happen? How can we achieve an asynchronous course and in, in, ignite Ignatian pedagogy and get both? Because there's it, it exists. The recipes out there or a recipe of how to do that work how do we frame so is this a, is it a mindset in your experience i mean is it a habit of mind that we can build in people's way of being yes yes and i think it is a mindset yes um, <laughs> you're doing it to me now aren't you <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a bit of a professional hazard scott i'm sorry to say oh no um Yes, and. Uh, yes. And, and, and actually, this is what we say uh, in, in the book, right? So a lot of the research has been around the mindset, the cognition, the way we think about issues. And it, with our colleagues, Marianne and I, with our colleagues, Ella Marone Spector and Amy Ingram and Josh Keller, we did some work on this notion of paradox mindset. In fact, we have a paradox mindset inventory. It's in the back of the book. It's We have a website. It's free. It's available. People are using it for research. How does this mindset help us in terms of changing things? And, and that mindset, and by the way, it's one of these mindsets that requires us to consistently remind ourselves. You know, it's not like you're in or you're out. Most of the personality scholars want to know, well, do you have a personality that's yes or no? And in fact, it is an ongoing practice of reminding ourselves, how can we get back into the both and because we are so drawn into the either or. So so yes, it's about constantly reminding ourselves to ask the how can we question rather than is it A or B. And one of the reasons we're constantly drawn back into the either or, where and this is where we started, is because emotionally it's hard to live in the both and. It requires, again, that we leave open uncertainty And if anybody wants to remind themselves about how much we do not like uncertainty and how much we'd like answers, I sometimes like to transport us mentally back to March 2020, when there was so much uncertainty as the pandemic was starting, and we wanted clear answers about things that there were not clear answers for, like vaccines, no vaccines, masks, no masks, isolate, don't isolate, you know, touch my, touch my groceries, don't touch my groceries. Like there was just so much uncertainty and that anxiety is real around it. So that's that's one thing to contend with is that it's both a mindset and we have to manage those emotions. And by the way, the other set of emotions that I think are worthy of noting is that both and invites us also into a perspective that says, how do I honor and engage people who have a different point of view than I do, often an opposing point of view, and legitimate that point of view 
Now that's really hard because we have this defensive reaction that as soon as I hear something opposite from me, the assumption is, well, if I'm right, then you have to be wrong. Yes. And we get super defensive there. And if that's the case, we stop listening. We start fighting for our point of view, but then we don't get to see the whole picture. And mm-hmm. so that happens, you know, we, we see that poignantly right now at, around political issues and the yes. assumption that we are on politically opposite sides when in fact, in many issues, what has been pitted as complete opposites Actually, if you dig deeper, people have a lot of overlap with one another, which is hard to get to that deeper space. It's true in our organizations. As soon as one person takes one point of view on a strategic issue and another person takes another point of view, we don't dig deeper into understanding and trying to see where the overlaps, compromises are. And so so I think there is that defensiveness that we have to grapple with in realizing, you know, in the end. We don't have to necessarily agree with one another on what has to happen, but if we can start by respecting, honoring, and listening to one another, we can get to a more rich, generative, creative set of solutions to the problem that we're facing rather than one that ping-pongs us back and forth between extreme opposing perspectives. And I'm happy to unpack some of that as well, but I think there's an important insight there around that idea. Please do. Please do. Go there. One of the things that we, you know, one of the reasons that either or thinking, you know, we, 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 in the book, we talk about three reasons either or thinking can be problematic. And, and we speak about them as vicious cycles. So, so I'll lay them out. And the, the first is that we tend to take a point of view. And then because we are stuck in inertia, we want to be seen as consistent. We want to be seen as right. We tend to go down that point of view and, and maintain a consistency with it, even if the other point of view is both valuable or even if the situation changes. So we talk about that as intensification or falling down a rabbit hole. Yep. And we see that, for example, in companies, we see that when they fall down a rabbit hole of their existing product and cannot shift. Yes. In our own leadership, we see that when leaders become so stuck in their own expertise that they cannot be open to alternative points of view. You know, we can talk about the S curve of innovation, both at the individual or the organizational level where you end up, if you're too stuck on one S-curve, which is the idea that you increase your expertise and efficiency over time, but then if you don't make change, you fall off the end of that S-curve. So that's the intensification. But then what ends up happening as we tend to fall off that S-curve and the environment around us changes and we need new perspectives is that we ping pong to the complete other side. And Mm. so organizations, for example, that tend to be so team-oriented and everybody's sitting in a fishbowl, open concept, (laughs) physical space, you know, and they realize, oh my God, nobody's getting any work done because we're being too teamy. And they switch. And so, so essentially, what's their solution? They switch completely to the other side. Everybody's on their own, doing their own thing, individual space. Or, you know, this hybrid conversation, this extreme between totally at home versus everybody's got to come back fully. But we we ping pong between the two in the ping pong space. What is so poignant to people is um, anyone who's ever personally dieted, right? So disciplined, so disciplined, so disciplined. And then you fall off the wagon once and you're like, oh, and you just give the whole thing up because of discipline. <laughs> and so, so we call that the wrecking ball. What you do is you sort of lose the good with the bad, right? The 
throw out the baby with the bathwater, if you will, for a metaphor, or, you know, you sort of, you, you swing to the opposite direction. So we see that happening in organizations where there's people pitted against one another in opposite perspectives, or in our political environment, where we've moved too far to one end, left or right, and then we swing all the way back, rather than looking in between and seeing if there are ways for understanding and unpacking the in-between. And I'll just say the third place, and, and, and this is where we see most this pernicious problem of opposite perspectives, is that we talk about it as trench warfare or polarization. And we call it trench warfare because what we see is people sort of digging in on their own perspectives and simultaneously shooting out at the other. And so the image of the trench is like we each dig our own trenches, surround ourselves by other people that reinforce our point of view, and then almost dehumanize the other side without really understanding what it's about, shooting out against it. And this polarization is partially what's limiting us from getting to better solutions. Again, whether it's in our personal lives, whether it's in our organizational lives, or whether it's in our political lives, the fact that we as individuals, as leaders, do not know how to sit and listen. Again, we don't have to agree with somebody, but at the very basic have the respect to listen to an alternative perspective. Maybe we'll learn something. Maybe it will open up new possibilities in service of better solutions, which is unto itself both anding, both and approaches. Well, and I just love that phrasing, this open up new possibilities, right? That, you know, every system's perfectly designed for the results that it achieves. Here we are. And if it's not yeah. yielding the results we want, and on any whether it's the diet or you know, <laughs> yeah. how how do we shift and how do we open up possibilities for new paths to get somewhere new? And when we're navigating the complexity that is organizational life today, you mentioned globalization, digitization, COVID, work from anywhere. I mean, we can go down the list of of topics. Again, I just have that view in my head of how this both and thinking opens up versus truncates and that either or truncates me into some pathways that limit me. They just bottom line, they limit the options when we are in a situation where we need as many options as possible, right? Yeah. Bottom line. Yeah. I mean, Scott, I can give you, you know, a bit of a story to ground this. Please, and again, yeah, please, we, yeah. are, we are going, a, we are moving across the spectrum of different types of issues. But uh, I gave a talk to a corporation a couple of months ago. And at the end of this talk, and it was about innovation, it was about, it was a tech company. At the end of the talk, someone came up to me and said, oh my goodness. I think you just gave me therapy for how to navigate my issues with my ex-wife. So, uh, you know, I took that as a huge compliment. And, you know, I find that, that that's true. I mean, my, my husband and I, I mean, we're constantly reminding ourselves what's the both and. We have a very similar set of values. We have a, a collective goal in raising productive, healthy kids. I have two 16-year-olds and an 11-year-old. That's our goal. And... 
based on our backgrounds, based on our, our own approaches, we tend to have some nuanced distinctions in, in places in which we would inform more discipline in our conversations or more uh, empowerment for our kids. And this would come up. It came up when the kids were younger in terms of sleep management. It comes up now in terms of chore management or homework management. And you know, a couple months ago, we were in a conversation and we both just got super heated. It was like, here, you know, and, and by the way, in marriage, it's like, oh, here's that conversation again. And it's always on the, I mean, at least for us, it's always on the boundaries. I mean, in the big picture, if we sort of take this higher purpose, one of the things that we talk about in both anding is reminding ourselves of the higher purpose. We are fully on board in our big picture vision in our parenting. Yes. And then in the details, it's about, well, there's just nuance in the details. And yes. again, and you know, I made the strategic error of saying to him, wait a minute, I wrote a whole book on both and I know how to do this stuff, which was probably the worst possible thing I could say to him. And it is true that we still have to remind ourselves, even in this relationship that we have built around these issues for a very long time, that we are in the same global picture and there is value in listening to one another, maybe opening up the possibilities in the conversation before we get to the, should we do X or should we do Y or should we do A or B? What's the C? And, yes. you know, I think that's a skill that translates into all experiences, all walks of our, I, I believe that that is a skill that we can lean on in all walks of our lives. Yes. Well, two things come to mind. One, I wrote a book about emotional intelligence and, and my wife, <laughs> so, yes. you write about this? <laughs> research is me search. Tell me yes, that. Yes. Research is me search. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think your phrase was, see the C, can we see the C or the A and the B, can we see the yeah. C? I, I yeah. just love that phrasing. I really do. And again, so as we kind of begin to wind down our time together, what are some other items that you would like listeners to know about the work? Are there any any other items, a couple of things that stand out for you that you would want them to know? Yeah. You know, Scott, I I love that question. One of the things that I've just been thinking about over the last couple of days, so um, I've been in conversation with a consulting firm about how do we, how do we invite more people into this approach? And one of the tensions that I have been navigating is that on one hand, there are some basic tools that invite people into thinking this way. And we want to open that up and give people the basic tools. And there is something potentially deep and mysterious about living in paradox, complicated and complex and emotionally challenging. And how do we live in that space between the two of those? In some ways, you know, I think about this as similar to the experience of of meditating. You know, meditating is an invitation for all of us to enter into a different level of consciousness. It's a way to shift our thinking and invite us into a different way of engaging in the world. It can be complex. It can be mysterious in what it invites us into. But there's also an entry point in there. And the entry point for meditating is to focus on your breath. And to continually just come back to that practice of if I am feeling my mind jumping around all over the place, just focus on one thing, which is often focus on your breath. I think that's true with both and thinking that 
when Marianne Lewis and I get into conversation, there are moments where we're like, oh, we totally got this. We understand this. And then there's moments like, oh my gosh, like our minds are all over the place as we think about knotted and nested interdependent opposites in a holistic synergistic way, like, like mind blown in terms of where we really understand that kind of relationship at a global level. And, and then that we come back to, okay, just change the question. Mm. Just continue to shift up and change the question to invite us into this kind of thinking. And so, you know, and, and again, we wrote the book to be mid-range between that, to invite us into both and thinking. The reason we wrote the book was because when we first started thinking about these issues 20 years ago, 25 years ago, organizational scholars, leadership was very much about either or thinking. It was about making rational decisions. Yes. And a lot of people said to us, this both and stuff, it belongs in a yoga studio or it belongs <laughs> in a philosophy course, but like it doesn't belong in rational organizational thinking. Well, as we did the research for the book or for or over time, not even for the book, you know, yeah. it's not just that we see this kind of thinking show up in our fellow academic domains of physics and quantum theory. We see it show up in psychoanalysis and how we understand, like we are late in organizational scholarship and, and in psychology and in sociology. We are late to the paradox party. It is a movement that has been happening over time. And over the last 20 years, we have seen both academics and we have a huge community of scholars and colleagues that are doing work on this idea and we have seen, again, the, the real world. We have seen leaders and consultants say, whoa, like this complexity that we are facing in the world, we have to understand this holistic interdependent notion of paradox. We have to understand the both and. So we wrote the book partially to capture the research of this expanding community over the last 20 years and partially to say, look, we get that people are moving from either or to both and thinking, how do they do it? Yeah. And so- the first part of the how has changed the question, but then there's, you know, just greater depth into how can you actually get there? Yeah. And what are a couple of other elements of how you get there? Uh, you know, I get the, the changing the question. I love that. We frame this idea that uh, we talk about it as a paradox system and we label four buckets a, B, C, D. And I'll just say, we spent a lot of time on those labels for A, B, C, D. So I'll tell you them it's, it's assumptions. How do we change our mindsets? And there, like the very specific practice is things like, how do we change the question? Yep. How do we change our assumptions that resources are limited and zero sum and scarce, which leaves us into either or thinking to resources are abundant and can be expansive, which leads us into both and thinking. So that's the assumptions piece. B is boundaries or the structures or the scaffolding. And here a key practice is when we confront these either ors or these dilemmas or these tensions, can we, what we call separate and connect, pull them apart to understand what is engaged with each one, what each one is about, understand each one in service of finding the synergies, connections, and interdependencies. So separate and connect as yep. a practice of scaffolding structures, but also can we come up with a higher purpose? And so again, as I was saying with my husband or with organizations, if we can articulate the long-term bigger picture purpose, we can see better how these things fit together rather than the short term, I got to make a decision on this. Yes. So that's being boundaries and scaffolding. C is comfort. That's the emotions piece. 
We talk about the importance of finding comfort in the discomfort. The important piece here is we are not asking people to sweep away or hide or pretend that the discomfort doesn't exist. Because what we know from research is that the more that we pretend that the difficult emotions aren't there, the more powerfully they come back yeah. at us, the more the more that they take hold of us. So it's being able to say yes to the uncomfortable emotions and still be able to move forward amid those. And then D is dynamics or the ongoing agility, change, experimentation, shifting that happens around both and thinking. And here, I'll just say one thing that I think is an important thing, an important practice for both anding. Oftentimes, when people think about the both and, they think there's going to be this ideal win-win mm-hmm. uh, solution. And so we talk about that as the creative integration. We're going to find the win-win. And the the metaphor we use for that is the mule. And we use the mule because the mule is one of the oldest biological hybrids. It is smarter than a donkey, stronger than a horse. We've been breeding them for, for millennia, for like 3,000 years. And the idea is that we find this like great place where we can both find work and life in its integrative, you know, format. Yes. And what I found to go right back to the beginning of this podcast to talk about, you know, what I found in this IBM study was that the great leaders that were navigating the both and rarely found this like ideal synergy between their existing product and their innovation. It wasn't about the win-win. It happened. It just didn't happen often. That instead, what they were doing is that they were making these small micro choices between the existing product and the innovation. They were sometimes putting more resources here, sometimes there. They were they were oscillating. And so I had talked about this as dynamic decision making, or we talk about this as being consistently inconsistent, or the metaphor we use here is tightrope walking. Okay. Because in order to go forward on a tightrope, and you're not stuck on the tightrope, but to go forward, you have to be able to, you're, you're never balanced on the tightrope. You're always balancing, making these sort of micro shifts between left and right in order to stay on the tightrope. Now, you're not overemphasizing one side or overemphasizing the other. You're micro shifting, right? And, yeah. and so in the innovation space, these leaders were micro shifting in the decisions that they were making or in the work life space. We might not find this ideal work and life. You know, I used to say when my twins were born, the ideal work life creative integration was that I open up a daycare work becomes life, life becomes work. It's all good. And I would hate that. Some people would love that. I would hate that. Yes. But in the, in the micro shifting, sometimes I'm home for dinner and sometimes I need to do a work night and, but it's not, overemphasizing work that I burn out or overemphasizing life that my work falls apart. It's micro shifting. And that's a dynamic practice along the way. I love it. So if I can mirror back a little bit of what I just heard, I think sometimes we might think of this panacea of a win-win that where everything is going to solve everything. And that's that's an unrealistic expectation as well. It's these micro shifts and and making it smaller in some ways, and in some ways also running some experiments to see, do these shifts help yes. us? Is it moving the needle? Are we getting closer to, again, it's not going to solve or fix sometimes, quote unquote, but these micro shifts are experiments that can help us get closer to, right? 
Yes. And I love your word around experimentation because that is indeed what we're doing. We're constantly experimenting, trying new things, being open and dynamic to what's possible. Absolutely. And, you know, again, (laughs) I would say that it's not an either or between creative integrations and, you know, between the mule and the tightrope walker or the creative integrations and consistent inconsistencies. It's both. Like sometimes Mm. there are these great win-wins. It's not that they never happen. It's just, that's not the only way to navigate this. And, And often it's, it's often the, you know, and sometimes what we find is that these oscillations lead us to the possibility of finding a win-win. Well, you have given listeners plenty to think about, and I am going to put a link to the book in the show notes so that they can click on that and purchase the book or the Audible. And I I think it's just such a fun conversation. And I really, really love the work that you're doing. And I really appreciate your time with us today. Now, as we wind down our conversation, I always ask, what are you listening to? What are you streaming? What have you? What are you reading? What's something that's caught your attention lately? It may have to do with both and thinking or paradox, but it could have nothing to do with that. Yeah. And and so, what's something that's caught your attention recently? Mm. Well, most recently, and I am grateful to colleagues who have turned me on to David White's poetry. I have been listening to his book, Consolations, that has invited me into thinking about words and ideas in very paradoxical ways, although that's not the language that he uses. I am intrigued by and starting to read um, Adam Kahani's Collaborating with the Enemy to think about what does it mean to live in a cooperative, co- you know, competitive, cooperative, uh, coopetition <laughs> world yeah. in terms of how we think about our uh, broad level of politics. And I am always a fan of uh, my colleague and friend Dolly Chug's work yes. in how she thinks about um, these kinds of issues in the context of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and her new book, A More Just Future, uh, in which she explores what does it mean to both love our country, particularly in the United States, although being in Australia, I think there's a similar conversation, love our country and recognize and be able to confront and face some of the sordid parts of its past. And so I think there's a both and in that conversation that's quite powerful. And I'll put a link to all of those and I'll I'll put a link to Dolly's newsletter because she always has just a wonderful newsletter that is so engaging. It's always, she, she brings you in with, with some type of story or some type of uh, stimulus that I never think of where it's going to go. And then it goes somewhere really, really cool with her. I I just love when her newsletters show up in my, in my inbox. They're just so. And often it has to do with her puppy, her dog Coco. So so yes, (laughs) for the dog lovers out there, that's often the hook. Wendy, thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate you checking in from Sydney and you know, I, I'm so thankful that you took the time to contribute to the textbook. I'm so thankful that you do the work that you do. And thanks for challenging us to think differently. I really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you for bringing these ideas to a, your to your community and audience. And um, I look forward to hearing how people are engaging with these ideas. For sure. For sure. Okay. Be well. Bye-bye. Okay, I really, really enjoyed that conversation with Wendy Smith. 
and want to thank her for contributing to the textbook with Middlebrooks, McNutt, and Morrison. Just a fun, fun conversation. I have this image in my mind where at times our minds can go to this A or B when in reality, if we're good, there's C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, <laughs> the list can go on. And that both and thinking is just such a critical tool for leaders to see other paths forward. So the practical wisdom for me is how do we build that habit of mind where we are helping not only ourselves, but our teams move past the obvious and think through potential other paths. And I think if we at least explore some of those other paths, oftentimes we can get to better solutions, better options, more elegant ways forward. So to Dr. Smith, thank you so much for being with us. We really, really appreciate your time. Take care, everyone. Be well. Bye-bye. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I'm also on LinkedIn, so let's connect. If you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. And now here's my daughter, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.